The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Richard Seymour. We spoke about Richard's new book, The Twittering Machine. The title is taken from Paul Klee's 1922 painting, in which the birdsong of a diabolical machine acts as bait to lure humankind into a pit of damnation. Richard argues in the book that this is a chilling metaphor for our relationship with so-called social media. We spoke about the nature of social media addiction, the way in which the platforms incite users into performing unpaid labour, and how we might conceive of repurposing or replacing the architecture of the internet to more useful and humane ends. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Haymarket Books, which has a great many left-wing titles that might be of interest to listeners. One that you might like to check out is Revolution Today by Susan Buck-Morse. In the book, Susan Buck-Moores highlights new forms of international solidarity and revolutionary subjectivity that can break the impasse of neoliberal capitalism and reactionary nationalism. In a moving account that includes over 100 photos and images, Revolution Today celebrates the new political subjects that are organising thousands of grassroots movements to fight racial and gender violence, state-led terrorism and capitalist exploitation of people and planet worldwide. The 21st century has already witnessed unprecedented popular mobilisations. Unencumbered by old dogmas, mobilisations of opposition are not only happening, they are gaining support in developing a global consciousness in the process. They are themselves a chain of signifiers, creating solidarity across language, religion, ethnicity, gender and every other difference. Customers in North America can order the book directly from haymarketbooks.org In the UK and Europe, the book is available through all the usual online outlets and all good bookstores. As always, you can listen to PTO on iTunes, Acast, SoundCloud, Blueberry and Spotify. And you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle, as always, is at Poll Theory Other. And if you enjoy the show, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. If you would like to, you can also support the show by donating through Patreon. You can become a supporter for as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2. And by becoming a patron, you'll get access to extended versions of PTO episodes, including today's interview. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Richard Seymour is the author of many books, including The Liberal Defence of Murder, Unhitched, The Trial of Christopher Hitchens, Corbyn, The Strange Rebirth of Radical Politics, and his new book, The Twittering Machine, is out now from the Indigo Press. Richard is also a commissioning editor for the journal Salvage, and you can find his excellent blog at patreon.com forward slash Richard Seymour WTF. 
Before we get properly into talking about the book, I was uh, I was wondering what led you to decide to write about this topic and, and how much it was informed by your own experience of using the internet and social media and also your experience of being uh, a quite well-known figure in the left uh, media landscape. Well, first thing to say about that is that um, the book emerged from initially an essay that I wrote for the London Review of Books about trolling. And I was fascinated with the ways in which the internet seemed to stage something that was going on internally, this dialectic, if you like, between the troll and the witch hunter. In other words, the person who sadistically goes out to find somebody who's uh, got frailties, weaknesses, vulnerabilities, and uh, exploits them. And the other person who um, finds somebody who's immoral, vicious, has done something terrible, uses that as an opportunity for a punitive lashing out. And uh, that the reason this uh, sort of interests me is because I've been on both sides uh, of this. You know, I've been the person giddily swept along by um, campaigns of spite and moralistic rage and, you know, the hopeful sense that, God, this terrible person, like who is it, Rupert Murdoch or somebody is on social media is going to say something terrible. And we're going to hold him to account. And, you know, it was very exciting at first. And then, of course, uh, you know, I've, I've also been the kind of person who would say terrible things to wind people up on the Internet, the kind of the troll. So I thought this what is being what is being staged here? Uh, what's being acted out here? What's my role in this? I would also say that um, part of or one phase of my social media addiction, you remember that uh, I was in a Trotskyist organization called the Socialist Workers mm -hmm. Party. Uh, they had a huge crisis because the leadership tried to cover up an alleged rape. And uh, we tried to hold them to account. And, uh, you know, a big part of the argument was communicating on the internet because the SWP had a very technophobic outlook, uh, you know, going back to the 90s when they used to say the internet was a fad. And we felt that um, the internet was uh, our ray of hope. It was a way of breaking through the secrecy um, and the control, um, the ideological control that the leadership had over the membership because internal communications were very strictly controlled. So, I, uh, you know, I, I remember feeling that for all the limits of the internet, um, it was, um, you know, a, a, an opportunity um, and uh, perhaps more good than bad. Uh, I came to feel differently about it, as you can imagine. And one of the reasons for that is that, of course, we ended up, those of us who left the SWP and tried to organize something else, having our own spasms on the Internet, our own furies. And at the same time, you know, because of that, I was having my own personal meltdown. Uh, you know, I didn't know who I was anymore. I didn't know, uh, uh, you know, I, I didn't recognize myself in the mirror. I'm talking uh, both metaphorically and literally here. And I started trying to change my image, change who I was, and uh, I, I got addicted to selfies. I went on a crazy selfie spiral, Instagram, um, Facebook, and so on. Um, and accompanying that was a sort of, uh, you know, a, a tendency to engage on the various media uh, hyperactively. Um, and partly this was about trying to craft a new sense of self. And um, But there was obviously a lot else going on because I would inevitably end up picking fights, uh, as a lot of people end up doing, even without being aware of it. And so 
a lot of this uh, has come out of my uh, a combination of my personal investments, my political interests, but also uh, watching some of the ways in which adult people behave on the internet, and particularly on uh, what we call social media incorrectly, sort of worried me. It worries me the ways in which people are prepared to bully other people, the ways in which um, the uh, a politics of spite develops out of that, um, the ways in which we engage in a form of grandstanding and self-promotion. Um, and I say we because I'm obviously implicated in this that is contrary to any kind of socialist politics and would even have been regarded as vulgar and rude, um, you know, a few decades ago. Um, mm. This is so we're we're getting a barbarization of culture, I think. And so, you know, we have to start by asking questions. We've got, you know, we used to have questions about, you know, coming out of a sort of cyber utopian perspective. Would it enable us to organize? How could we organize on the Internet? Could we have swarm logic? Could we have leaderless networks and so on? Um, but we obviously need a different set of questions. And the starting point, I would say, is that we have to stop calling it social media Calling Twitter, Facebook and their equivalent social media is like calling cigarettes friendship sticks. You know, they can be used in that way, but that's not what they're for. So that's why I take the appropriately Adornian detour. Uh, I call it the social industry. It's not exactly the same thing as the culture industry. You know, when Adorno spoke about the culture industry, the idea was that um, it, it represented a catastrophic subordination of life. Uh, and all culture to the instrumental reason of capital. Um, and its rules of verisimilitude and legibility would derive from capital. The borderline separating culture from empirical reality would be obliterated because, you know, essentially it would just become a reproduction of capitalist ideology. Um, that was obviously exaggerated. And, you know, it probably wasn't true to say that the individuality of cultural products was pseudo-individuality. And, uh, you know, it, obviously even the Hollywood production line had more variation than Adorno admitted. Mm. But we're looking at an industry where sociality is scripted in a much more direct, um, top-down way. We are integrated from above. Uh, on the basis of algorithms and protocols. And the protocols we kind of take for granted as the conditions of possibility, uh, as, you know, you know, we, we don't even question them. You know, you've got a, uh, a profile image, uh, you've got a certain space for writing things, certain uh, affordances with regard to what kinds of materials you can share, character limits in the case of Twitter, uh, Instagram, you're basically you have to upload a picture, um, and it has to be a certain shape, and it can be run through a certain range of filters, and so on. So there's a fairly um, uh, scripted form of social interaction there, and uh, you know the main sort of aspects of this have to do with likes, shares, retweets, and all the rest of it, designed um, to goad us into constant interaction. As a research by Alice Warwick. Looking at Silicon Valley and looking at um, the ways in which the social industry developed, I shouldn't use that term, but she basically said these protocols reflect the outlook of uh, wealthy white men in Northern California in that Silicon Valley culture where it's all competitive, hierarchical and status seeking, where mm. everybody uh, aspires to be a celebrity. 
and you know this essentially is what they've done they've created um, an addiction machine that is also a new sort of micro celebrity farm a data farm and so on but, i mean and, you, you point out in the book that uh, one of the paradoxes of this is that they often don't use the platforms themselves because they're aware of they're so aware of its addictive uh, capacities yeah i mean you can't uh, pay much attention to this and not notice like Every few weeks or so, there's a social media boss uh, or there's a report of a social media boss somewhere saying, I don't try to use this and uh, I don't let my kids use it. There's a number of ex-social media bosses uh, like Sean Parker, for example, former uh, Facebook vice president, I think, a number of others who basically uh, sort of say, look, we quite deliberately created an addiction machine. Uh, and the idea was with things like the like, uh, this is pure cyber crack. Uh, we know that people want social validation and we know that they can become dependent on it. And we think that this is uh, to do with dopamine. You know, you click on uh, or you click on your notifications. Right. So you see that little red sign and it tells you how many notifications you've got already. That tell that has some influence on how happy or sad you're going to be for the day, according to some research anyway. You click on it and you get your hit. You get, um, oh, I've got so many likes on this post. I've got so many responses on that post. Great. Um, now, their idea of what addiction is might be crude. They're certainly wrong about how dopamine works. Dopamine doesn't give you a high in the way that they think. But um, it doesn't really matter whether the theory works as far as they're concerned. What matters is that um, uh, it, um, uh, the, the practice works. So the theory may be uh, very, very crude, but it grounds an effective praxis. And, you know, it, it, I, I also am a little bit skeptical of the claim that they deliberately contrived this. I think they hit upon it and then retrospectively went about theorizing it so there's a lot mm -hmm. of writing now about addiction um and how that's you know uh, got to be a technique of selling you know uh, get your get your audiences hooked but i think that came after the fact i think facebook stumbled on the like button um uh, which actually they had copied from various other platforms and uh, the other platforms um, that weren't using it felt obliged to go along with it because it was uh, one of the major things uh, boosting, massively boosting engagement. So there's various problems with their story, but nonetheless, it's fair to say that the industry does regard its relationship with its users as, uh, you know, one of addiction. So that in a sense, we are users as much as heroin addicts are users. You know, and we probably should think more about what it is to be addicted and how that happens. I tend to think that it's something that happens behind one's back uh, mm. through a series of smaller decisions. Um, the thing that you do, you know, for a bit of entertainment or for a high or for whatever distraction once or twice uh, can gradually come to exercise veto power over all other po possible forms of satisfaction, all other ways of using your time. And the thing about the social media, the flow of it uh, that I've noticed is that it's really easy to fall into. I mean, it's actually hard work being on there and it can be incredibly distressing even if you're not engaging, you know, you only have to see two or three um, posts which are really stupid, really obnoxious, you know, or something terrible Trump has said or some 
awful news item. Somebody got stabbed in front of their kids or something. And that can set your uh, wheels in motion for the rest of the day. And and that's just, you know, two or three uh, tweets. But chances are, if you scroll down, there's infinite scrolling. You're going to see dozens and dozens and dozens. So, you know, uh, you get into it fairly easily. And it can be it can have a certain distracting numbing effect, particularly if there's something else in life that you're trying to avoid. But once you're in there, you know, it doesn't it doesn't seem to me that there's an awful lot of pleasure involved. And that's interesting because that is also true for a lot of other addictions, like particularly gambling. You know, the interesting thing about gamblers is they stop themselves from feeling pleasure um, at wins, because if you feel pleasure at wins, you're going to feel it all the more partially when you lose you achieve a certain emotional flatness um Mm. and uh the 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 joy becomes not the wins but the anteing up and i think this is very similar uh to the social industry it's structured very much like and there's a lot of commentary on this you know um that it's it's like um a gaming machine in your pocket it's structured very much like it because you have the system of variable rewards you have what the gambling industry calls wins, uh, sorry, losses disguised as wins. In other words, you put a lot of money in the machine, uh, you get the odd win, but you're actually losing a lot of money to get those wins. But you only notice the hits, as it were, um, mm. and you know you you, you uh, and that keeps you um, sort of um, glued to the machine. So, in terms of of the the gaming analogy, I mean, you talk in the book about the the architecture of casinos and how they're designed to prevent people from from going outside. You know, the, the windows are blacked out, exits mm-hmm. are hard to find, and all that sort of thing. And I mean, one thing that occurred to me, thinking about my own experience of social media, is that you know, like everybody else, I'm in the business of of curating my online self and, and projecting a certain persona yeah and the effect of that is to uh, and i'm sure this is is quite a um a, a common uh, feeling is to make actual social interaction out in the real world all the harder because you have this online persona that you've created whether it's your um kind of carefully created sort of uh, wittiness which yeah. you know is easy to create uh you know it's, it's, it's much harder to to be witty in in real time right uh, <laughs> as, as compared to to, to be, uh, being online where you can you know spend half an hour thinking about a particular particular tweet mm. that you're going Tell to send yeah <laughs> and and obviously you know as the physical side of it as well in terms of you know we all choose the the nicest photos that we have of ourselves some of us use filters to 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 you know improve those images and and so that seems like a clear case where the architecture does just force you back onto the platforms and as you say makes the notion of 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 these platforms as being about sociality seem very dubious well it's about um uh the how to put it the capitalist appropriation of sociality so it's not Mm. entirely wrong but it's um it's obviously about commodifying it and turning it into raw material for extraction. But, I mean, first of all, in terms of the um, business about blacking out windows, removing clocks, you know, making sure that you don't have any incentive to exit, uh, your food is served constantly. So there's no set meal time. So you lose the sense of time. That's the crucial thing. Time becomes very different in the machine zone. Uh, you notice on social media that time also works in a very different way. You know, it doesn't have a clock working on the 24-hour time. It has time is marked by 
the uh, the age of the thread that you're looking at or the age of the post. So uh, you'll notice that people often run into this difficulty where, you know, they see something and they're like, oh, my God, this is a terrible news article. I've got to share it. And mm. somebody says, oh, that's from 2004. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I do that. <laughs> yeah, we all do it, though. But the point is... And first of all, there are two things going on there. First of all, we we share things and comment on them without bloody reading them, um, which is a really bad habit. Um, But it's one that's really incentivized on this medium Mm. because you have to work really quickly and really hard to get the rewards that you're supposed to get. You know, time is sort of structured um, and marked out in such a way as to keep you on there. And the only temporal information they give you is the information that will enable you to gauge the state of play. In other words, this thread is four hours old. This comment is three minutes old and so on. And that will enable you to play the game, uh, to roll the dice, as it were. And, you know, the thing about that is uh, you talk about building an image. Well, one of the things that we do when we roll the dice or when we type in these symbols into the uh, the twittering machine or play cards or anything, when we gamble in that way, we're um, making a demand to uh, the other, which in this case is an anonymous internet other, for a verdict. You know, what am I? What is my destiny? Mm-hmm. And usually the destiny is you're nothing and you're a loser and you're going home with nothing. Um, you know, that's how gambling works. And, you know, this is essentially, I suspect, the unconscious fear that a lot of people have. Uh, and it, it, it accounts for the uh, fragility um, and uh, sort of testiness of people on this medium, because you're always expecting to lose. Um, there are all sorts of other reasons for people to be very fragile and touchy on social media. You know, among them is the fact that you never know if your interlocutor is a concerned troll or a a Russian bot. Apparently, 50 percent of um, Internet traffic uh, from a few years ago was, um, uh, you know, basically bots and, you know, sock puppets and various things like that. And, um, you know, 30 percent of it was malicious, you know, part of cyber war. So you never know uh, what you're dealing with. So, you know, we are sort of being addicted to a medium and on the basis of that addiction we are put to work and this is the crucial thing that i want to wrap up this point on we are not the consumers everybody knows this by now but i just want to underline it we are not the consumers we famously are the product we're not voters either so it's not a sort of democracy and it's not a market it's something else it's something quite new and original And what it is, is it's a way for us to wagelessly work in our leisure time. And, uh, you know, because it's sold to us as pleasure, as something useful to us, as a tool, uh, we don't notice the work. But, uh, I mean, it's a bit like those micro tasks that we get assigned when we go to uh, enter a website and we have to fill in our password and then uh, type in what uh, numbers appear on an image. That then turns out to be a a, a snippet from a a New York Times uh, article from 1900 that's being digitized. In other words, you're contributing with free labor to um, the online digitization of a back catalog of work. And this is, I mean, I'm giving you an example. That's a real example, but this is actually quite common. Hmm. So we're constantly doing work that is labeled under something else, under security or under pleasure or 
you know, under something else as well, uh, on top of that. And also, I mean, just just the um, the acts of of expressing our preferences and our desires and our interests that that all is uh, the the architecture of, of the of, of the twittering machine, as you call it is not sort of passively recording that information, but it is provoking us to provide that information because it needs these enormous data sets in order to 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 sell products back to us and, and to maintain its economy. Absolutely. I mean, it's um, everything that we see on the feed is a somatic barrage of information. And this is the important thing to remember. The, the feed, of course, is tailored for us. Uh, data is very individualized on this uh, machine. And the more we engage with it, the more individualized uh, it can be. And it's basically tailored to ensure that we engage more. So it will show us stuff that whether or not it's pleasurable is beside the point. Um, if it makes us engage more, then it's, it's done its job. It's quite interesting to me that uh, if you listen to people in the industry, they don't really think that we know our own mind. They think that uh, we will say we don't want X, we don't want Y, and then they will run a beta test or something, and it will turn out that people really engage with this feature. And so they'll say, well, you know, they're idiots. What do they know? They don't know what they want. We know them better than they know themselves based on the data. And there's a sense in which that's partly true because they're tapping into the unconscious, I think, uh, digitizing it and uh, uh, repackaging it. But there's also a sense in which that means that there can be no question of a democratic will or formation thereof. Um, it's a, a perfect technology for technocratic paternalistic control. They don't have to listen to what we say. And if, for example, um, what's goading us into more interaction is that we're being constantly bombarded with stuff that is actually making us really unhappy and distressed. And, you know, study after study finds that um, usage of this uh, machine uh, will tend to increase things like depression, uh, self-harm, suicidal behavior. It's particularly bad for girls and young women on Instagram for reasons that I hope are pretty obvious. But, you know, the fact is that we're still engaging. And if, uh, you know, if it engages us in a way that makes us anxious and that we're constantly trying to prove that uh, we're good enough, constantly trying to prove that we're not ugly. You know, there's uh, girls who go on YouTube, for example, um, and they, you know, post short snippets of themselves saying, hey, am I pretty or am I ugly? And apparently this is a, a you know a vital question for them and they get mocked for it in the press and it's uh, spoken of as if it's a great moral crisis but that's what the industry is for i mean given that we're engaged on the basis that we all have to be little celebrities you know with our own public relations our own um public profile um our image and so on it's not surprising that it ends up in that direction um, so, you know, that's one way in which we can be engaged in a way that actually makes us um, feel a lot worse and suffer a lot and not have a lot of pleasure. And, you know, other ways you might ex be exposed to racist abuse or sexist abuse. And of course, the um, sort of they will say, look, we'll deal with this. We'll we'll introduce new algorithms because there's always a tool for that, no matter what the problem is. Mm. Um, but the fact is that, of course, even if they wanted to, the tools couldn't possibly root out every example of racism. 
Second of all, um, the, you know, the moderators have to look at um, a, a lot of the reports and so on. And quite often the moderators' decisions are perverse. Um, and, you know, they're working in often very low wage sort of data factories out in, um, say, Egypt or somewhere else. And it's, you know, they're making decisions under uh, a lot of pressure. But then, you know, on top of that, there's no real reason for them to get rid of the racism. In fact, if they did that, they would lose a lot of their value. Um, Donald Trump, for example, uh, back in 2017, there was a study that found he contributed about uh, a fifth of Twitter's total value. And, you know, that's just one guy and his uh, following and his tweet storms. Obviously, he's very prominent. But if you uh, think about uh, the, the various far-right micro-celebrities, um, as we might call them, mm. people like Richard Spencer, um, Alex Jones, Tommy Robinson, these are people who've all made a lot of money. Jones Profits, for example, um, he made some $5 million in 2014. And it all depended upon advertising to a pretty large fan base built online and built via the platforms. And, you know, like the kinds of money that he was making was mostly for advertising his male supplements, like uh, Caveman and Super Male Vitality, which is um, not an interesting. Tommy Robinson, I think, um, you know, paid the average user, YouTube paid the average user $7.60 per thousand views in 2013. So Robinson's um, single most watched video alone, and he put out many, many videos, would have garnered $15,200, which is, you know, not nothing. Uh, Stefan Molyneux uh, made one million pounds in Bitcoin donations, an estimate, thanks to his online presence over, I think, about five years. You could go on and on and on. Um, essentially, you know, the, the, there's no reason for them to get rid of content that, you know, you might find uh, upsetting, distressing. Uh, and in fact, there's every reason for them to keep uh, these toxic culture wars going because, you know, it, it generates um, the torsions and pulsions uh, and storms uh, that uh, create uh, flows of attention on the machine. And so, I mean, to the extent that they ever do do anything about it, I mean, uh, for example, Alex Jones was, was uh, blocked from, uh, or Infowars was blocked from Facebook. Yeah. Would you tend to think that's just, uh, you know, public relations, that they do this once there's just a significant degree of outrage? It's, it is and it isn't. They, we should not underestimate the extent to which, since 2016, they have come under tremendous pressure, not by and large from users, though to some extent, but mostly from Washington and from uh, the liberal um, former political establishment, if you like, people who are sort of distressed that, uh, you know, Cambridge Analytica and Russian trolls uh, have such influence. Mm. I think that obviously they're mistaken to uh, assign so much power to these uh, factors. But, you know, it's, it's fair enough to say that they are factors. But uh, so they have been under uh, real pressure to get their um, game in order. But there's a limit to what they can do. They can single out some micro-celebrities for bans, and they have done that. And they can say that they will target, as YouTube recently did, they'll target Holocaust revisionism and things like that, Nazi material. Now, that's a shift because until recently, the stance of the entire social industry has been, you know, the mantra has been free speech. Mm. Now, when they say free speech, 
it's very important to say, to call them out on this. They are not promoting free speech. That's not what their mechanisms are there for. They are defending their monopoly on the speech, if you want to call it that, that occurs on their mechanisms, uh, on their platforms. And uh, that monopoly is threatened if anyone tries to regulate them, if the state tries to regulate them, or if they are faced with user backlash. So they um, wanted to say, look, there's nothing wrong here. Um, you, you know, there's, there's no bad speech that can't be fixed with more good speech. So, for example, uh, one of the Twitter bosses, I think it was Jack Dorsey, recently said, hey, look, you know, if, um, if Alex Jones says terrible things on Twitter and uh, lies about stuff, why don't some of you journalists who are complaining about this, why don't you take him up on it? Why don't you call him out? Why don't you expose him, show him up? You know, and this, you know, has been the, the mantra of a lot of liberalism, to be honest, when dealing with the far right. You know, the idea is get them on question time and we can we can expose them. Mm. Um, but that implies that this machine, the Twittering machine, selects for accuracy and truth and that, you know, um, fact checks are, are necessarily effective. We know that that's not true by now. Um, and there's good research on why it isn't true. One reason people aren't really amenable to fact checks is that they don't particularly like strangers talking to them like that. You know, they don't particularly like strangers trying to sort of uh, humiliate them in public by telling them they don't know what the hell they're talking about. In order mm. um, to be really fact checked in a way that would uh, have lasting effect, you would need to be spoken to by somebody that you know and trust and who takes you seriously as a human being not snottily denounced on social media, you know, that's never going to work. So, And, and this, um, I suppose, is, is in a period of time where expertise is in, in general is, is in question, right? Um, I mean, I, you know, I remember talking to Will Davis about his book and the way in which statistics like, you know, sort of uh, experts talking about the economy and talking about GDP because of the, the way in which the GDP stats are no longer in connection with the uh, the economic situation of, of the mass of the population, both the data and the people making the argument are, are seen as untrustworthy. And, and so, yeah, it seems we're in a situation where, where that's particularly unlikely to, to work. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that Will Davis has been very sharp on this point. What I would say is that it's it's not just a question of not trusting the experts. Obviously, they don't trust politicians, they don't trust economists, they don't trust anybody who has been in authority. The media in particular are not trusted. There are sections of society increasingly that don't trust the men in lab coats or the women in lab coats. They don't trust sciences. And given that science has been since the Enlightenment or certainly since capitalist modernity, the sort of... Uh, foundation of legitimate knowledge, you know, whatever comes out of a laboratory uh, has to be authoritative. That's a, a really significant development. You know, in terms of the backlash that we're talking about, it's much more that there, there's a, an awareness that uh, you can't um, trust necessarily what the government says, that you can't necessarily trust the media. And that leads to 
you know, especially on the internet where essentially you can't trust anybody because you never know if your interlocutor is a troll or whatever, and there's sort of, sort of universalized paranoia, that leads to small um, and usually temporary communities, sort of vigilante investigatory committees forming around various subjects of inquiry, whether it's called 9-11 truth or chemtrails truth or Hillary Clinton uh, sex slaves truth, you know, hashtag Pizzagate, all of that stuff. Um, but of course, you know, it's not just the far right. The liberals have their, um, you know, or rather the centrists have their theories about how Brexit happened um, and how uh, Hillary Clinton lost the 2016 election. And some of that's verging on conspiracist uh, literature. And um, obviously the left, the alt-left has its versions of this. So there's this generalized crisis of knowing. And there are attempts, you know, grassroots attempts by people to conduct a version of critical theory, but, you know, lacking the critical theory. Uh, and that's what we, you know, we end up with a kind of um, susceptibility to conspiracy theories. Um, actually, another part of this is not just the crisis of uh, authority and the crisis of uh, knowledge. It's also the fact that the social industry has done something that Hollywood started doing a long time ago, but it's accelerated it. And that is, it's fused entertainment and politics in a radical new way. If you look at why far-right micro-celebrities do as well as they do. And to be absolutely clear about this, on YouTube in particular, they've done far better than any other political tendency um, in terms of growth, in terms of their expanded influence. Um, and I think they've probably done better in terms of, um, even in terms of uh, absolute audiences. You have to mm. check me on this. But um, why is that the case? There are a number of reasons. One is that... Um, uh, you know, Zainab Tufekci, um conducted uh, an investigation and found that YouTube's up next feature consistently points users towards more uh, extreme material, um, where extreme material uh, or extreme content is uh, equivalent to extreme sport. You know, it's a kind of it's a kind of thrill. It's kind of rush. And generally speaking, this is male rage, conspiracy theory, Holocaust revisionism, 9-11 truth, all of that stuff. And so it, it gives you um, entertainment and it gives you a sense of, oh, understanding something that has been mysterious, making a certain totalized sense of the world when, generally speaking, the news bombards you with just fragments and, you know, bits and pieces of the world and gives you impressions that, you know, can only be cohered with ideology. Here, you've got these coherent stories about how the world works, and it gives you a certain narcissistic thrill to think that you get it, that you're mm. smart enough to get it, that you've seen it. And, uh, but it also gives you uh, a lot of entertainment value. I mean, that's not true of all conspiracist material. If you ever watch the UFO conspiracy theory stuff, it's 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 both bonkers and boring. But <laughs> but the nine eleven truth stuff, uh, or you know Alex Jones uh, uh, sort of material is uh, you know if you're into that kind of thing, absolutely riveting. And there's a reason why he formed such a symbiotic relationship with all the platforms that have now uh, blocked him or banned him. Because he was drawing lots of audiences, and uh, as um, I think there have been investigations with, which have shown that Facebook, you know, they made quite a bit of money out of him.
You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.